Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Well, good evening. Can you hear me okay? Okay, great. Nice to be back here, see some familiar faces and other new faces. Technology, meditation, and relationship. How do they fit together? And what does it have to do with this practice? This uh, beautiful practice that we do of showing up from moment to moment. Uh, Steadying the mind, gathering our attention. And looking deeply at experience, looking, looking closely, really examining the heart, the mind, the body in a very direct and intimate way so that we can learn more about who and what we are and how to make our lives more meaningful for ourselves and for those around us. <clears throat> I think every generation for the last 150 years or so has experienced some new innovation in technology uh, that has revolutionized day-to-day life and society and often been cast initially as a great threat or evil. (laughs) So, uh, you know, first it was the printing press and many people were worried about the masses reading <laughs> and you know the potential for abuse for spreading ideas in this mass way um then it was radio and then television i know when i was growing up it was there were just seven tv channels 2 4 5 7 9 11 and 13 that was that was it You know, you had cartoons on Saturday mornings and (laughs) that kind of thing. Uh, And then at a certain point, it was computers. So, right, and and so each one, as it it was introduced to society, had this huge impact uh, and then also a lot of resistance. So today, it's, uh, it's our smartphones and the Internet and increasingly social media. And this uh, incredible moment-to-moment capacity to be connected or to appear connected. So there's a key difference or actually several key differences with this newer technology. And who knows in retrospect, right, what we'll think. But uh, for one, it's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It doesn't stop. It doesn't shut off. Um, it's interactive. So it, it responds to us more and more in, in real time. Uh, and it's personalized. So it's not just a static thing like a newspaper or a TV program or even a computer game that we're interfacing with, but it's actually responding to our behavior And it's having unprecedented effects, not only on society and our relationships, but on our minds. 
So I want to talk tonight about uh, about this, and in some ways, uh, is this will just highlights certain areas because it's such a rich domain to begin to explore through the lens of meditation practice and through the lens of the Dharma and the teachings uh, that come that come through the Dharma. So the the first thing I want to say is uh, that. Technology is a tool, right? So, and like any other tool, it can be used in different ways. So a scalpel can be used to perform surgery or to injure someone, right? It's not, it has nothing to do with the scalpel, right? It has to do with our intention and how we use it. This, the, the human hand, the human mind, incredibly powerful kind of technology that can be used for good or for harm. And um, obviously, the incredible sort of unreal development, what what we've been able to develop with technology, um, has wonderful benefits, even as it has drawbacks and dangers. so on the one hand, we can learn, we have access to information in ways that we never have before. We can learn about anything at any time, right? And then the other side, the sort of information overload that we can experience, sort of being inundated and flooded with information, knowing oh, when is it enough. Um, it makes it easier to get all sorts of things done, whether it's using a GPS or I was shopping at the store the other day and visiting relatives in New Jersey, and so my mom wanted me to pick something specific up for Thanksgiving, and, you know, I sent her a text message of a picture. Is this the one you want? Yes. Instantaneous. Yes, that's it. So it, it makes life easier in many ways. And then at the same time, there's the temptation to distraction. Uh, we've seen in the last... Uh, in the last five years, how uh, social media can be both uh, a very powerful tool for organizing, uh, for social movements, and we've also seen how it can be abused to manipulate democracy. So it's an incredibly powerful uh, phenomenon that we've created. I live in California, and my my family lives in New Jersey. My mom, my dad, my brother, folks are in their seventies, and we talk every weekend. Just say hi, and usually we'll we'll chat, do a video chat, and it's wonderful to get to see their face, and it just adds a, a, another layer of connection to the conversation, right? So you know it provides this capacity to have more connection across distances. And yet at the same time, if we don't use it properly, particularly with social media, it can feed our sense of alienation and disconnection. So there have been some studies done on how much time we spend on screens. Anyone want to take a guess? The average American, the recent CNN study on how many hours a day we spend on average 
staring at a screen and consuming media? Ten and a half. Per day. Per 24 hour period. Average American. Young people. Um, the uh, NIH did an average. Uh, kids, three hours a day on television, five to seven hours a day on a screen. And teens, it's nine hours, teenagers. So we're engaged in a vast social experiment. Seriously. The amount of time that most people are spending with their, their mind interfacing with a screen and the internet. I mean, how many, how many of us here know the phenomenon of whether it's pulling out your phone or opening your computer to do one thing, right? And then like 20 minutes later, two hours later, you're like, whoa, just happened. And then maybe you didn't even do the one thing that you, right? Right? Does that ever happen to you? You're like, what was I going to, I was going to send, oh, I didn't send that email and now it's time to go, Right? because a notification popped up and then someone else sent you a message and then, and so on and so on. So what is technology doing to our minds? And how do we practice with it? How do we actually include this aspect of our lives in our practice, right? Because if we're actually on this path, nothing is outside of it. Nothing is outside of practice. Waking up is about bringing awareness to every moment and to studying the mind, to studying the heart, to using our time well, to cultivate wholesome qualities and to free the heart from its confused and entangled relationship with experience. So one of the things that's important to keep in mind is particularly with social media, but in general with the internet, what's the purpose? The, the companies and the people who are designing websites, and maybe some of us here work in tech, um, earning a living, but what's the goal? Most websites, social media sites, the number one goal is to keep our eyes glued to the screen. And there's, there's, a, there's a term in the industry for this. It's called engagement. It's a specific metric. They measure each of our level of engagement as a user. And you know why that's, the, why that's so important? The time we spend online? Advertising. Because that's how the money get made, gets made, advertising. The more time we spend looking at it, the more dollars are earned. And so everything is designed to keep us glued to the screen. And with the development of algorithms and artificial intelligence, it's not even a person doing it. They're just formulas, learning, studying our moment-to-moment -moment behavior. So when you scroll through a feed and you pause and linger... Something is learning. Oh, that they paused there. Something of interest was there. And every movement, every movement of the mouse, every click, every pause is being tracked. 
to observe our behavior and learn how to keep us more hooked. So what's being reinforced? What forces in the mind and the heart are being cultivated by, the, by, the de- by design of this interface? Well, the number one force is craving, right? Wanting something. Oh, that's interesting. Let's look at that. Oh, that's, I want to get one of those. What that, what'd they say? Oh, yeah, I like that. That's, 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 that's interesting. The mind going out and grabbing onto something. So, and I want to I want to make the caveat here. I, I implied this, but I want to make it really explicit that not every single website or app um, or uh, um, program online or on a computer is doing this. There are uh, apps. I work for some of them that are designed to support our meditation practice or to support well-being. You know, but what's interesting. One study was was comparing time spent on an app versus uh, relative impacts on well-being. Okay, I don't remember how they were studying it, what uh, scales they were using to measure well-being, if it was self-report or other measures. Um, uh, but <laughs> this is not going to be surprising. So the apps that people spend the most time on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, had the most detrimental effect on well-being. The more time on those apps, the, more, the, the less sense of well-being, the more depression, the more anxiety, the more stress people reported. The apps that had the most increase in well-being, I can't remember which ones they, they measured, but you know things like Headspace or 10% Happier, um, meditation apps mostly or, or apps focused on well-being or nutrition or health, right? Things like that. Least amount of time people spent on them but reported the most well-being. And again, why is that? Well, the large companies that are running these apps are pouring millions of dollars in to figure out how to grab our attention and keep it. Right, so I was just meeting with the guys at Ten Percent Happier, who are based here in Boston, um, which is a wonderful app. There's really great guidance on meditation in there, and we were talking about how do we how do we how do we promote awareness about technology through the app, and you know help to have people ha- make wiser choices about how we're using our time online. So a large segment of the technology industry is playing off of our deep-rooted craving, this, this uh, underlying tendency of the heart and the mind, which uh, is kind of at, at the core of contemplative practice, is understanding that force, this, this addiction that is hardwired into all of us to always want more, this insatiable urge to reach for something that's never fulfilled. The analogy in, one of the analogies in the text is it's like a bucket with a hole in it. Doesn't matter how much water you put in. Every experience, every pleasant thing that we consume will need to be replaced because it passes. That's the nature of things. 
And the more we the more we don't see that and understand that process, the more we stay hooked into wanting another one, wanting another one. So this is this is this is one area that technology plays off of our conditioning and feeds unhealthy, unhelpful patterns in our minds and our hearts. Another factor to keep in mind is that the human organism is just incredibly sensitive. And this is one of the things that we we start to recognize and experience more directly the more we practice. And if you've ever sat a retreat, particularly a long retreat, you, you feel much, much more the 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 incredible exquisite sometimes excruciating sensitivity of being alive and sometimes it's beautiful and wonderful and intimate and and awe, awe inspiring and other times it's just like overload the the amount of sensory and mental input from moment to moment so we are incredibly sensitive beings and when we don't have when we haven't cultivated mindfulness wisdom and compassion we don't have a mechanism to handle the influx of sensory input the changes of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral and the reality that we're not in control Mindfulness and loving-kindness are talked about as protections. They protect the heart because they, they bring wisdom and the force of, of care and warmth into our relationship with the changing flow of experience. And without them we're left with craving and aversion to manage this experience of being alive. So this sensitivity of the body and of the mind also means that, that we're always learning. The mind is a learning machine. It's malleable. It's, it's plastic. It can be shaped. So everything we're doing is somehow shaping the mind. This is why meditation practice works. This is why contemplative practice uh, has an effect because the more we attend to experience in a certain way, the more the mind learns how to be with life in a balanced and clear way from moment to moment. The Buddha said that that uh, he was a master of analogies. If you read the texts, so almost all of his teaching, he'll use analogies to talk about things. And there's this one line in the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses where the Buddha said, um, the mind changes so quickly that there is no analogy to describe how quickly it changes. <laughs> and then he also, he one, in another place, he talked about the untrained mind being like a fish out of water 
flopping and flipping this way and that, fickle. So you just consider this incredibly sensitive sponge, the mind and the heart, that's always learning, that's, that's, that's whatever it touches, it has an effect, and it's, and it's um, forming to, like water, you put water, it takes the shape of whatever you put it into, right? The mind is like that, it takes the shape of whatever situation it finds itself in, if it's not trained. So we take this incredibly receptive, sensitive, um, malleable uh, intelligence that is uh, human awareness and put it in touch with a screen that's driven, programmed, and designed by companies interested in capturing our attention, what is the effect? What is it doing? What's being learned with the time we spend online or on social media? So one of the things we see in our our meditation practice is uh, how prone to distraction we are, right? You sit down with this very simple, elegant practice, right? It's like totally not complicated. Feel your body, feel your breathing. At a certain point, be aware of whatever's arising, moment to moment. And we're thinking about 10 years ago, and we're planning the next thing, and we're arguing with that person, and we're judging ourselves, and then there's half a breath, and then we're off, you know, yesterday again, and (laughs) it's like... It's nuts. <laughs> it's already like fragmented enough in here. And then you spend 20 minutes or half an hour online in this like carnival, this bazaar <laughs> of magicians and rides and fireworks and everything grabbing your attention, right? So I don't watch TV that much. I, I, I pretty much since college, I stopped. As soon as I moved out of my the house where I grew up, I stopped stopped watching TV. I watch movies periodically. I'll watch one of the late night comedy shows on on a tablet or something. Um, I have an old friend from high school in New Jersey, one of my closest friends. Every time I come back here to the East Coast to visit my family, I spent we spend some time together. And he's into video games. He's a drummer. Really, really wonderful guy. We're, we're, very, we're very different, um, but in some ways our hearts are very similar and just have a very deep connection. But he plays video games. He has like a huge TV screen in his living room. So we'll watch some TV together. And it's always a cultural education for me to like <laughs> see what's happening, you know, that millions of Americans are being exposed to every day. Uh, that I've protected myself from by not watching television. Um, And one of the things that uh, over the years, over the last like five to ten years that I've been astounded by is the um, how rapidly, particularly in commercials, how rapidly the cuts happen from one thing to the next. And it's a reflection of of the reduced attention span, right? Um or 
the intensity of the images and the sounds. Again, it's, it's, it's a reflection of the desensitization and the numbing that's present in society, that we need the ever more stimulation to feel anything or grab the attention. So, so I was watching a TV show. I was watching something on Comedy Central. I don't have cable, so the way it works is they put in a few commercials. That's how they offer their content for free. So I was watching um, the Daily the Daily Show. I think it is Trevor Noah. Is that was called? So um, he's growing on me. He's growing on me. This this was about a month ago, and so there were three commercials over the course of the episode, and. Um, I stopped watching after the third commercial because I, I got my fill and it was enough. Um, but I was actually more interested in the commercials than in the show. And um, so all, all three of them were for smartphones. Two of them were for the, the new iPhone. And then the third was for the new Google phone. I found the iPhone commercial so fascinating from an anthropological and sociological perspective. So it's the 30-second spot. If you haven't seen it, you have a choice. <laughs> you could either just not watch it, or you could watch it from a perspective of awareness and study the response of your mind. So the purpose of a commercial is to, is to, is to instigate craving, right? It's to make us think we need or want something. So um, so the commercial is, it's just the phone, basically just seeing the phone and I- an image on, on its screen. And then there's this um, uh, a pretty hip, tight tune playing behind it with a strong beat, some really nice horns. I mean, they got it's really, really, it's nice music. Um, the image on the screen is this, uh, like, play of of color it's like liquid and and various colors and textures swirling around the screen which to me it says it's 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 alive it's dynamic and the colors are are bright and changing and it's so real it's so sharp and then the song the jingle so the 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 hook of the jingle is I gotta read it so I don't screw it up. I can't find it, I'll just, I think I can get it. Um, Every time you call on me, I drop what I do. Okay? So just that, right? It's like having a two or three year old without all the other benefits, <laughs> you know? So what would it be like to have someone around who's like constantly poking you and nudging you, saying, hey, hey, pay attention to me, pay attention to me, pay attention to me, pay, atten- pay attention to me, 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 pay attention to me, right? Every time you call on me, I drop what I do. 
you are my best friend and we've got some things to do. That's the jingle. So what's going on here? What are, the, what, are the, what are the messages that are being suggested? So one message, the image and the music, which is, it's a great song. It's like alive. It makes you want to move. It's got a beat. It's got horns. It's like the, the, the tone of the singer's voice is very uh, engaging and raspy. And so it's saying, be alive, right? And the image, this this natural colors and flowing it's saying like this is real life in your screen right it's more real than life and then i'm your best friend how crazy is that i'm your best friend so in addition to the sense of the the craving and the sensitivity and the distractibility I think one of the other core things that's happening with technology is it's playing off of our deep biological evolutionary expectation and craving for connection, for belonging, and for community, which modern Western society is like devoid of. So our biology expects in a very real and profound way to feel a sense of belonging and place on this planet. To live in a community where we know the people around us, where we have relationships with them, where we have a shared story about who we are and where we come from and why we're here, and where we work together for a shared goal or purpose that's larger than any one of us individually. That's how we lived for millennia as human beings. And modern, contemporary, Western society like, couldn't be farther from that. One of my teachers um, uh, travels a lot internationally, <coughs> te- teaches all over the world, different continents and countries, and he was teaching in Africa, in South Africa, um, a number of years ago. And uh, he was talking with one of the yogis on the retreat who, who works in a village in South Africa. I, can't, I don't remember what she was doing, if she was um, doing medical work or human rights work or some kind of work with children. And she was describing to him uh, an exercise she was doing with some of the kids where she invited them to draw a picture of their home. He said, you know, draw a picture of where you live. Draw a picture of your home. And the children drew the pictures. And so if, we, if you asked a third grader or fourth grader here, here in Cambridge or Boston, or New York, to draw a picture of their home, what, what, what do you think they might draw? Where do you live? House. Yeah, house, an apartment. Right. So this this child drew a picture of the village. This is this is where I live. It's not this room. It's not this building, because my aunt lives there and my grandmother lives there, and this is where my best friend lives, and this is the place where we play by the stream, and this is where we this is where we gather fruit in the spring, right? 
this is where I live. There's a sense of place and belonging. So there's a danger and an opportunity here with meditation practice and technology. So the danger is that we take this meditation practice, the formal meditation practice, where we sit still, often with our eyes closed, or we walk up and down with our attention focused inwardly, and we use it in some way to disconnect, to shut off, to separate ourselves from relationships in the world. When the goal and actually the practice itself is the complete opposite. It's actually about being more present, more connected, more engaged with life, with the world, with relationship. So when the teachings came from Uh, Asia over here to the West. The focus was on the meditation practice and the wisdom teachings, and many of the other aspects of the cultural context were not transferred. And so the result is that the likelihood or the tendency that the meditation practice will be interpreted through the lens of a um, contemporary Western focus on individualism is really strong. So that this meditation practice is about my enlightenment, my awakening, right? And all this other junk just needs to go away so that I can get enlightened. So I know for myself, when I started meditating, within the first few years, I found myself feeling more alone, more alienated, more isolated through the meditation practice. As my sensory awareness became heightened, as my awareness of my emotions and my thoughts became uh, more vivid, I found myself trapped inside more because I didn't have a community around me. I didn't have the connections or the support. I hadn't you know, transformed or healed a lot of the relational wounding that I was carrying. And so the practice initially served to to increase my sense of loneliness and alienation and isolation. And it took many years to uh, not only work through that, but also to to understand practice in a different way. So if you look at at the teachings and also at ancient Indian culture out of which they arose, relationship and community are are essential. They're so woven through the teachings that it's actually easy to miss. So when lay people came to the Buddha and said, hey, I heard you like know something. What's the deal? He wouldn't say, okay, close your eyes, feel your body, notice your breath. He would say, so you're interested in, you know, having a happy life and living more meaningfully? That's wonderful. That's, that's a good thing. Let me ask you a question. 
How does it feel to give? What's it like to be generous? Is that for your welfare or not? Does that bring happiness to you or does that bring pain and suffering? It feels pretty good to give. Say, great, I want you to just go and practice generosity. Practice giving. When someone gives you a gift, what does that do to your relationship with them? When you give someone else a gift, how does that affect your heart and your relationship with them? It connects us, right? It connects us. We feel a sense of belonging. We have a relationship now. We've shared something. So that's where the, that's where the path starts. Dana, connection. So then someone comes back and says, all right, this is good. I like it, giving. The subtler teaching there is what does it take to give? What do we have to do to give? We have to let go, right? So this path is about letting go. But it feels good to let go, actually. It's not about mm, mortification or you know some kind of stoicism. Or it's about the joy that comes from from giving and letting go. So. People, someone comes back, and then the next thing he taught was ethics, virtue, character, morality. Try not to hurt other people. You know, don't steal, don't kill, don't cause harm with your sexual energy, don't speak falsely or harshly, take care with your actions, it's important. Go practice that. So again, relationship. How are we showing up? So before the Buddha taught bhavana, mental cultivation, Meditation practice, he would teach dana and sila, relationship. You look at the monastic sangha, so that's for lay people. You look at the monastic sangha, and you think, okay, well, that's for lay people, but, you know, monks and nuns, they're, like, meditating all the time, right? They're, like, off in a cave or in the forest and just kind of striving for enlightenment, right? Not in this world. Not so. So the life of a monk or a nun is governed by what's called the vinaya, which is the code of conduct. It's all of the rules that monks and nuns follow, and there are two to three hundred uh, major rules and thousands of minor rules prescribing all of their actions, saying, you know, don't do this, don't do this, make sure you do that, da-da-da-da. So included in those rules, monks and nuns in the Theravada, the early Buddhist tradition, are not allowed to handle money. They're also not allowed to store food. They're not even allowed to grow food or dig the earth. Okay? (laughs) So you don't have money, and you can't grow food, and you can't even store food. What do you have to do to live? You have to ask. They can't even pick fruit from a tree. It has to be given to them. It has to be handed to them from someone else. It has to be placed in their bowl. Connection. Relationship. Right there. The very, the very structure of the whole monastic sangha is based on a, on a relationship of dependence and giving and receiving.
There are many, many other examples of this. The three refuges, of which one is Sangha, community, the importance of spiritual friendship, Kalyanamita, on the, on the, in the teachings. The Buddha said, uh, I don't see any other single thing more conducive to cultivation of wholesome states and the Eightfold Path than having a wise companion. One who has a wise companion cultivates the Eightfold Path. He said it's like just like when you see the dawn, it's the precursor to the sunrise. Having a good friend is the precursor to walking the path. That's how important spiritual friendship is. So this practice is not about cutting off or separating at all. It's actually, it's founded on relationship. And as I, was, as I started to say before, um, even today, Asian culture, many Asian cultures, but certainly in ancient India, there was a huge, the, 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 the sense of the group and the community and the family was very, very, very strong. So even the sense of being an individual, psychologically, very, very different than the idea we have of being someone separate here in the West, at least in the, in the modern West. So I want to get back, I want to talk about, so this is the frame, the context for the teachings. I want to talk about the actual formal meditation practice and then come back to technology. So in the formal meditation practice, sometimes we hear teachings like observe, observe your breath, witness your thoughts, watch, watch your thoughts go by, watch your breath, okay? Watching and observing is a relationship of separation, right? How does it feel when someone's watching you, right? When you're watching something, you are, you're separate from it. The practice, mindfulness, is, is about intimacy. It's about inhabiting experience directly. So it's more about feeling the breath than observing it. It's more about experiencing than thinking. Experiencing thoughts, seeing them clearly, sensing them. When we consider what it is to be alive, what it is to be human, when we look closely at experience, what we see is that the experience of being conscious, the experience of being aware, is one of relationship. So the mind is always knowing something. So there's awareness of hearing, there's awareness of seeing, of smelling, of tasting, of touching, of thinking. Even when one is alone, the, the sensory experience is an experience of relationship. There's the subject and the object. There's the knowing, and there's what's being known. Do you see that? At least intellectually. Even being in a space, there's always a sense of me being in something, in a room, in a field, the environment. So the, the basic unit of the universe is two, not one. Consciousness is always knowing something. It's a relationship. 
And so the meditation practice is about bringing awareness to that relationship and seeing what are the forces that are characterizing that relationship. How is the mind relating to what's arising, to what's being known? The tendency is when it's pleasant, I want it, I want more, I like it, it's mine. When it's unpleasant, ah, get it away, right? We pull away, that's called fear, or we get angry at it, push it away, aggression, aversion. So what forces, or if it's neutral, we just don't pay attention to it. It's called ignorance, ignore it. Mindfulness practice is about there's the awareness and the object. It's about bringing wisdom to that relationship, seeing it clearly, and cultivating certain qualities in that space of relationship, qualities of patience, energy, kindness, compassion, interest, connection, and ultimately wisdom which sees experience clearly and knows its nature, that it's temporary and that it's uncertain. It's not in our control. Therefore, why get all bent out of shape? It's just going to change. It's not up to us, right? So meditation practice itself is a practice of relationship in a moment-to-moment way. You see that? And we're looking at how are we relating with that experience, When we don't have awareness, when we're not paying attention, what happens is we lose the sense of relationship. We take the sense of who I am as being um, fixed and separate, and everything else becomes an object in relation to me. The process of perception that creates an experience outside myself That is a person, this is a chair, this is a flower, that's a car, and that's an object, that's a thing out there. And then I can do things to it, or not, or get away from it. So we relate, when there isn't wisdom and clear seeing, we relate to experience as objects. We relate to the earth as an object. And then we log old growth forests and pull up fossil fuels out of the ground and put trash in the ocean and so forth because it's just an object it's just a thing other people are just objects or just things you're in my way get out of my way give me what i want so this is the objectification process that happens in consciousness based on perception when there isn't wisdom and awareness when we're not seeing clearly that what's happening is there's a relationship here We think, we think that there's someone here perceiving those things out there in relationship with the world, but it's the other way around. Because there's a relationship, there's a sense of being someone. It's not that there's someone here And then because there's someone here, there are all these objects in the world. It's because of the object that the subject is here. They arise together. You can't have have an object without a subject. And you can't have a subject without an object. They depend on each other. That's relationship. It's called dependent co-arising. That things only exist in relationship with each other. It's getting a little heady, I know.
But the point is that when we don't see that, we disconnect. And when we disconnect, what, what's driving our actions? So getting back to technology, back to screens. Our relate, a screen, by definition, there's a separation. We're watching, right? And it reinforces this sense of life and experience being something out there separate from me that I can observe without it affecting me, which feels safe. And I can turn it on and turn it off when I want, and I can make it do what I want, and if I don't like this, I can go over there instead. So I've been yabbering away for a while. I'll say just a few more things about um, kind of relating to technology. There's a good case to be made for viewing social media in particular as an intoxicant to categorizing it within the fifth precept, an intoxicant that clouds the mind and causes heedlessness. Mm -hmm. Seeing the smartphone as a drug or an intoxicant and trying to bring restraint in the same way you would bring restraint to using alcohol or, or other intoxicants if you use other intoxicants. So this is one way to consider just even beginning to contemplate what would it be like to bring mindfulness and awareness to our relationship with technology, to categorize it within the practice of precepts, of bringing care and an intention of not harming to the activity, the harm being what's done here to our own mind through the, through the kind of heedlessness and, and confusion and uh, dissipation of energy that happens and the increase in fragmentation and distraction that it breeds. Another important place to look is our intention. So when you pull out the phone, what's the intention? What is it we're actually seeking in that moment? Is it a break? Are we wanting to feel more connected? In those empty moments, is there, is there some discomfort or a little bit of anxiety that we don't want to feel? And so we go to the screen to assuage that. Rather than either just being able to bring awareness to it or finding another strategy that's going to be healthier to meet that need. I want to also acknowledge that it's important to be able to take a break. There's nothing wrong with that. It's healthy, you know, it's the, life's hard and we need ways of downshifting and sometimes we need ways of numbing out, of actually shutting off. That's that can be really helpful sometimes. But are we doing are we are we finding ways of doing that uh
that minimize uh, any any negative impacts on our heart or our mind. Another um, another thing to to pay attention to or track is the effect. So if you if we if you spend time on the phone or the computer, pay attention to the quality of the mind before and after. When you open the computer or when you pull out the phone, notice. Notice the quality of your mind. Notice the quality of your mind after and start to track the effect, which will build wisdom. It will build more clarity about why we're choosing and whether or not we want to, to, to choose to engage it. Another thing you can do is... Um, if you if you have a daily practice or a weekly practice, whenever you sit at the end of the sitting, keep your have a phone nearby, have have your device nearby. Don't use it during the sit. But after the sit, take the next two minutes to practice being mindful in a very intentional and clear way with the device. So so include that in your mindfulness practice. So pick up the device and look at it. And then pause and notice the effect. Like unlock the screen, pause, notice the effect. Notice if there's like a little bit of a, a rush or a desire to check something. Pause. So that slowly, if you do that every day just for a minute or two, you will slowly build more awareness around relating with the screen. And then there are really simple things you can do, like um, turn off notifications. Just turn them off, unless it's like a really important thing. Go back to that that phrase, uh, every time you call on me, I drop what I do. Do you want someone nudging you every 90 seconds saying, pay attention to me? If not, turn off your notifications. Uh, take all of your apps that are that, that are social media apps that suck your time away, take them off your home screen so that when you open the phone, you're not tempted immediately to look and check. Put them on, on one of the other screens or in a folder where you're not seeing them. Or you can, there are various apps you can get also to track your time on the phone. There's one called Moments that a lot of people like that will actually track how much time you're spending on the screen so you can begin to see like, oh, wow, God, I spent like six hours looking at my phone yesterday, <laughs> you know? And I think the last thing, and maybe I'll end here, is probably one of the best things we can do to have a more balanced relationship with technology is to develop real relationships in our life. Come here. Meet people. Go out. Have conversations in person. Take a walk. Go stare at a tree. Sit by the river and watch the water connect with what it is to really be alive rather than the show, the passing show on the screen. So I offer these thoughts for your reflection. I hope it's useful. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.